0: Good everyone. This episode of The Staggrove is brought to you by Sheezies. After COVID last year, I wanted to start putting away some money to create a little bit of a nest egg on top of what I was already doing with KiwiSaver. Sheezies allowed me to invest $25 a week in the share market and see the returns. If you'd like to start investing in the share market, follow the link in the show notes and you'll receive $5 to go towards your first investment. Check it out in the show notes. Follow the link to cheersies. Um It's great, great great to have you it's back here, great, Paul. Great. Um, I've got your Latest book behind me there, beside the uh, one before. One yeah, that's, like, that's
1: what I like to see. I like to see it on the bookshelf. Always yeah.
0: good. Yeah, no, so... Um, who have you
1: got me next to? Let me just, just move out of the way. I was just going to say, who was I next to there? Is
0: I, it you, Sapiens you got me next to? Yeah, Sapiens and Hamadares. Um So, yeah. Well, and then, you and then a bit of four-hour work week as well. Oh I'm on the I'm on
1: the top shelf, literally and metaphorically. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then we've got old like Dave so Dave Galbraith down here. He's on top of two other Tim Ferriss books. So you know it's um oh,
1: know.
0: there's a little that bit on, on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. yeah, um
1: Yeah, nice.
0: What was it? What was it like uh, diving into the second book, mate? What was what were the carrots and sticks, bro? <laughs> cool,
1: cool, cool, cool. Uh, it was really enjoyable, actually. You know, like my first book, How to Escape from Prison, autobiographical, satisfying to get done. Like, basically, I had started writing that book while I was still in prison. And, you know, and, and, and I'd spent 10 years going, oh, I need to get around to finishing this. And it was mostly finished for 10 years. And then finally got it finished, got it out there. It was satisfying to get out. But... And I've spoken to other people about this this before, Ryan, but when it's autobiographical, it's not like you feel proud of a book because, you know, we've all got our own stories and you just your story's your story, you know? And I knew it would be a useful vehicle for a positive impact on others and that it was worthwhile in that respect. And so, you know, it was satisfying to get done, especially after it had been over a decade of it sort of just being there. But this latest book is one I'm actually proud of in the sense that, you know, it's not autobiographical per se. It's about what I've invested my professional capability and energy into, and I'm and I'm really proud with the structure and the output that is the book. And part of that as well is that, I mean, as you know yourself from having diligently read it, read it, read it. <laughs> it. Yeah. Well, anyway, mate, these are a the credible bloody author, eh? Can't <laughs> talk. But anyway. <laughs> Do you know, I speak professionally, and look at that. I, That's what editors are for, anyway. right? <laughs> <Bro>. <laughs> anyway, moving on, right? Moving on. So with that book, you know, there was some really great contributions from, from people who were incredibly generous and knowledgeable in the space. And, you know, and again, I always like to, to praise the generosity of the SAS for, for allowing me to come along and observe what they do in action when it comes to applying the mental skills which captured in the book, you know, which are around how do you cope under real stress and pressure, such as when you're preparing for the possibility of becoming a prisoner of war and other such things. But also, you know, the broader uh, Defence Force psych team and the Special Forces psychologist and, uh, you know, my my good mate and font of knowledge and, and wisdom, uh, Captain Drew Kingy, who I want to talk about a little bit because he was the one who, who who conceptualizes that idea of focus control that I think is useful for us to talk about because it was something that you tapped into in terms of the, the benefit of hunting yeah. and the natural requirement when you're hunting to be really present, to be really focused on immediate sensory experience. So I want us to just come back to that and talk about that a bit more when we get the chance because I think it's such a, a relevant one to your audience. But such a relevant one for all of us. But so to have the opportunity of people like that, and, you know, um, Elliot Bill and other people who contributed and gave their knowledge and their time, you know, fantastic. So really pleased with that book. And uh, one of the things I really like about it as well is that it, well, it moves beyond the standard sort of resilience talk, because resilience is such a term that we're all familiar with. Whereas, you know, really resilience is about that bounce You know, can I come back to a previous state of functionality or maybe even a higher one from growing through adversity? And also, as you know, what's my general sort of level of of well-being like? But it misses that whole point, which is the sort of the Defence Force SAS stuff, which is around that when the heat is on, you know, can I remain effective? Can I still be who I want to be? And sure, we don't all encounter gun battles and the rest of it, Ryan. But, mate, you know, you've got kids, Hey, how many kids have you got now? Is it one or is it more?
0: Just, just, just the one. Um, I was, I was going to bring the up the
1: one. How old are
0: they? She, she's three. Yeah, and um, three. Okay, o- off to pick her up this after this afternoon. So, um, yeah, it'll will be back into the staying present moment. That's what that's why I reckon yeah. tr- children teach. Yeah. Like, could be right here, right now. I, th- I saw Urs- Ursula Carlson put up a video today. She was hiding in the sheets, and that was what she was going on about. That now she's just come out yeah, of okay. lockdown and and it's uh, sorry, MIQ straight into lockdown, and she was like. I can't do this 24-7 kids thing. So I just want to just want to go shopping and do my job or <laughs> something like
1: that. percent man. Can I just say shout out to early childhood educators?
0: Oh shit, yes. Man.
1: <laughs> you are a... I so could not do it, eh? You know, like if, if you want to go neuroscience on it, to do that job effectively, you need to be really serotonin dominant, which is about, you know, the ability to be present naturally, to be uh you know, able to operate, to not be impulsive, to be in the moment, all of that stuff, stuff which for someone like myself, I'm more dopamine dominant, which is more about, you know, movement. It's more about motivation. I, I can't do that. I don't have the temperament for it to, to do that work with kids. You've got to be so good. And the reason I brought up, and I do want to go back to that around the Brett, being present with kids, because I think that's such a crucial thing to discuss but the reason I brought them up is because while you and I might not have to deal with becoming a prisoner of war or gun battles or stuff like that, you know, the same tools that the SAS and others use in those contexts, man, we have our own stresses and struggles in life, right? Like for me, it's a lack of compliance from my boys, which yeah. I always think is awesomely ironic because so much of my work is talking about leadership, how to lead through change, you know, navigate the emotions around it, and yourself and others, all that sort of stuff. And I go home and there's no respect for my leadership, bro. You know, <laughs> I can't even get Lego picked up. <laughs>
0: Mate, it's, it's just so like builders. It's just like builders. They can build you <laughs> an immaculate house, but don't go look at theirs because oh. they've got eternal re- renovations going on from years and years yeah.
1: ago. <laughs> oh, man. So for me, you know, those that's like the testing ground. And I tell you this right now, like, man, like everyone, I've still got a long way to go in terms of being who I want to be in the areas that really matter to me. Like I've got a long way to go in terms of being able to show up as the more patient, more present parent that I want to be, that I want my kids to experience. But I've got the tools that enable me to try and make incremental progress in that respect. And that's the key, man, is having the tools, having the way forward. You know, like I used to do a lot of work with people perceived as bullies in senior leadership roles and organizations. And that's an interesting one, eh? And... You know, a key thing that you need to be able to do there for those people to be able to engage in change is to give them confidence that there is a way forward. Because if you've got temper issues and mostly that's, that's, you know, a key ingredient of most people who end up being bullies in the workplace is a lack of emotional regulation. You know, they contaminate other people with their own emotions. They take it out on other people. You know, very few of them are actually psychopaths walking Mm -hmm. around, not caring. Most of them are people who have high standards, high expectations. And then when they start to lose the sense of control over the output and the work that they're doing or that's been done on their behalf, and they don't have good emotional regulation, then that starts to contaminate other people. But if I just tell you, hey, bro, you know, stop losing your temper. Okay, well, that's great. That's really helpful. If I don't know, if I don't know the way forward, if I don't know how to to positively impact that, then it's probably easier for me psychologically to minimize my behavior, to deny it, to dispute it, to rationalize it. Whereas the second I can go, oh, okay, actually, I've got an idea of how I can improve in this way, how I can change this, then I can let go of those rationalizations, those minimizations, and what I can start doing is start taking the steps in the direction that I actually want to travel. So it's about those tools eh, and having those, which is incredibly useful, I think. Um, But yeah, going back to the parenting piece and that present piece... You know, as members of a social species, we all want to feel seen and valued. And the single best way you make people feel seen and valued is by being present with them, when you engage with them, when you talk to them. And kids are the ultimate in that respect. But I don't know about you. One of the things I certainly notice about myself is the more stress and pressure I've been under, you know, the more I've been struggling, the more I will revert to escapism with my phone and other such things when I'm around the people who matter most to me, you know, the more I'll be engaged in that behavior rather than really being present with my kids. So it's a really important thing to be mindful of and to try and manage so that, you know, they do know they're seen and valued.
0: Mm, yeah. No, and I wonder if,
1: sorry, Brian, I'm learning a lot. I'm not, much- <laughs> you
0: yeah, know, I wonder, I wonder if, there, <laughs> if there is some more tools out there that can en- engage that sort of consciousness. Like I- I've got, um, the alert that says you've been on the social media app for 15 minutes going on. You know, you get you get 15 minutes up front and then throughout the day, it's constantly telling you, "Hey, that was 15 minutes." And I wonder if that's like just a simple tool, like you said, when you're when you're in that escapism moment of, you know, a system interrupt to go, "Hey, hey, what, what are you what are you up to?" And, and you know, I don't know if there's anything that better that can stop you engaging in the first place. But you'd, what what sort of tools do you have to sort of interrupt that escapism?
1: Oh, here's a great one. Here's an absolute great one. And, and shout out to my uh, brother-in-law, Kelly, for this, because I got this idea from him. And this is what's called a kitchen safe. Yeah, I've heard of these. Have you ever seen these? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kid you not. You know, it's like actually create a physical barrier to stop you being on your phone at points. For people who don't know, a kitchen safe, it's kind of like a Tupperware box, but it has a timer and a lock on it. And apparently they they originally came out for people who are on diets, Right, <laughs> so that you could restrict your access to cookies and stuff like that. But the reason I have it and the intent behind it there is that you put your phone in it for periods and you can lock your phone away for a couple hours. And I'll tell you this right now, I guarantee you there will be lots of listeners who relate to this. Your phones are, 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 a, are a device designed to be addictive. And one of the things that you notice about things that you're addicted to is the way they consume your psychological resources, even when you're not engaged with them. For example, when I'm with my kids and I have my phone in my pocket, even if I'm not pulling it out, there's a part of my mind that is devoted to the awareness of that being in my pocket. I kid you not, man. You know, that's how addictive they are. That's how much they draw you in and and consume your psychological and emotional resources. And actually having a physical barrier like that that removes the temptation is just such a great way to go it just makes it so much easier so that sort of thing i'd recommend but also what i'd do is i'd recommend you know being really more structured around it same with your social media engagement which is a big part of that phone right and that's going hey look i'm going to allow myself to engage with social media to post comment to like all that sort of stuff to check my likes All of that sort of, you know, dopamine releasing stuff that makes us feel good, makes us coming back and wanting more. But I'm going to restrict it to certain periods and certain times. Like a a lot of people are aware with this idea that in the interest of productivity, what you do is you restrict checking your emails to certain periods of the day. And you get rid of those pop-up notifications. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly, right? But what you do is you you turn off the notifications so they don't interrupt (laughs) you and you check your emails at certain times. use that same approach but in terms of social media like for example turn off your notifications is a great one you know also as well move the social media icons away from your first page on your phone screen so you don't automatically see them if you check your phone for other things or use your phone and then restrict them to certain periods you know that's part of that whole process of creating a bit of structure that makes it easier but like i said man you know in many respects using physical barriers like that like the kitchen safe is a great way to go just in terms of really enforcing it yeah um, you, hey, one more we, thing on the oh, you yeah. no, one more
0: thing go for
1: it <laughs> i just want to say i think i think this is quite interesting too so there's this i'm making this business case for being present in the sense that it makes other people feel seen and valued which is the most meaningful thing you can do in terms of your relationships, right? For your kids, for your significant others, whatever it is. But there are other elements to it too. Like I came across some interesting research recently where they were talking about, you know, perception of your lifespan and how long your life feels. Now, just about everyone would have the same sense that when you're a kid, time lasts a lot longer. A year is a long time when you're a kid. A month is a long time. A week is a long time. Days take longer. Whereas when you get older, time seems to speed up. Now, what's interesting about this is there's some research out now which suggests that the reason the perception of time alters as you get older is because you lose the sense of novelty that you have as a kid. So check this out. When you're a kid, everything is new to you. And on that basis, you pay a lot more attention to everything. You're more constantly focused on the present moment, on immediate sensory experience. Oh my gosh, look at that weed growing out of that Mm -hmm. crack. There's a daddy long legs over there. You know, all of this stuff captures your attention in a way that it doesn't when you're an adult. When you're an adult, there's the sense of this loss of novelty, which means that you're no longer as focused on immediate sensory experience as you are on you know, devoting your psychological resources to thinking about the milk that you might buy that might spill <laughs> or, you know, these other things that have gone on in the past or, or, or the other things that occupy our minds. And so one of the cool things about focusing on being more deliberately present, you know, that focus control that uh, Captain Kingy talks about is that I actually reckon if you do that more deliberately, then you will extend your perception of time as well your mm. life won't feel so fleeting and so short. And that's pretty cool because the other research around, you know, extending your life has often been around calorie restriction. Are you familiar with this yeah, stuff, right? Yep. All right. So, you know, so what do you know about the calorie restriction approach?
0: <laughs> well, um, I've been one of my most probably podcasts actually is with Megan Ramos, who, who's involved with the intensive dietary management in Toronto. Um, her sort of supervisor is Dr. Jason Fung. He's a nephrologist, and they use a lot of that stuff around reversing type two diabetes. But um, oh, his name's escaping me in, in, in ca- good, California. But then there's Michael Mosley as well, and yeah, they're, they're talking about you know, um, and also David Sinclair touches on it with like the search genes and things like that, and you can block um rapamycin and, and all these you know little cellular mitochondrial um hormones. But yeah, basically that if you decrease your load, you might uh, live forever. But then there's, I was just listening to um, Tim Ferriss and, and Kevin, somebody, and, and they were talking about, well, what about the, the quality in the time? You know, what, what, are you, what are you doing? Which way are you going exactly. to do this? I'm talking about having a, having a beer, having a beer, you know?
1: <laughs> be hungry and miserable and have a longer life or be more present and perceive yourself to have a longer life but a life that is actually more enjoyable and pleasant mm. as, you do, as you experience it, right? So I think actually controlling our perception and, you know, of course, you know, you want to you manage your diet in order to be healthy, but you probably don't need to go on the approach of the calorie restriction they've done on mice and the rest <laughs> of it, you know, where you're permanently hungry. When actually, if you can just go, hey, I'm just going to seek out more novelty in my sensory experience through paying more deliberate attention to things, man. You know, and it's interesting, eh? Because it's not a new idea. Like a lot of us, you know, are familiar with mindfulness as the sort of like buzzword and Mm -hmm. buzz approach. Oh, mindfulness, you know, do some meditation, all this sort of stuff. But man, it's stuff which just is really taking us back to what was more natural to us in our lifestyles for the periods we evolved in. And again, this links back to the hunting conversation. Now, one of the things you'll know from my book is I talk about this, this fact that we have a Stone Age brain in a modern mm. world. If you want to understand so much of your behavior, so much of your emotional experience, all you need to do is look back and go, what was advantageous from an evolutionary survival perspective to our nomadic tribes people? Because that's how evolution works. Evolution is not um, contemporary to the moment you're in, it's based on what advantaged your ancestors in terms of contributing to the gene pool, which has led to you now. So you really need to look back in order to understand present experience. And the reason mindfulness is so beneficial for our, our, our well being, and that's something I hadn't even gotten into yet, but our general sense of well being and our ability to manage strong emotions as they occur which is more the tactical use of mindfulness, which is interesting, right? Because often people talk about it as this practice, as this mm, habit, that will make you happier. <laughs> right, but actually it's something you can really dial in. And that's what I talk about in my book, when the heat is on, if you really want to you know, shift your focus to dial down the mental resources available to your, why am I doing this? You know, kind of part of your brain to the part of the brain that needs to be effective. Then you know the strategic use of attention as the way to go there, but that's just what our ancestors did naturally. Because mate, you're a hunter. You know what's required of you to be successful when you're out hunting. How? Do you, where do you have to be focused?
0: <laughs> on, on bloody everything, mate. And, and um, I was last time I went hunting out with someone. I said, it's almost good to just spook one straight away. So then you're like, right. <laughs> <laughs> get, get, get on with the focus. That's what they look like. That's what they sound like. That's where they are, and um, and then get into it. But um, yeah, it's uh, you speak about it in the book. It's like getting into into flow, and yeah, it's this quite unraveling of of your um, civilian world when you get into your bush your to hunt together your world. It's, it's, it's quite amazing, and yeah, yeah, you start noticing so much. Um, trees, tracks uh, areas of bush that just don't look any good <laughs> and, and hearing as well yeah. it's, it's quite amazing as well, it?
1: yeah it's so cool isn't it and that's what we evolved for man we evolved for paying immediate attention to our environment in the interest of being successful when hunting and in the interest of not becoming prey when gathering yeah. you know when you're in the bush you have to be focused you know you're looking at all of these signs all of these indicators around you know, where you want to go, what you want to avoid, where you might find things, where you might not. You know, it's our natural state of being. It really is. But of course, you know, we've created these worlds for ourselves where we no longer, you know, experience that natural habitat. And on that basis, we need to create artificial opportunities to pay more deliberate attention, you know, to control our focus. Whereas previously, our lifestyle naturally linked itself to that kind of focus. And I think that's quite a cool idea. And, and you know, there's, there's heaps of different ways you can engage with it, too, as I talk about in the book. And as you talk about with those flow states, for people who aren't aware of that term, it's just the technical psychological term, which really refers to being in the zone mm. when you're performing at your highest level, but also you're really emotionally engaged. You're enjoying what you're doing in terms of the process of it. You know, actually, the experience is really enjoyable. You want to keep going. You lose track of time, all sorts of other cool stuff. But, you know, in order to to be to get that state, you have to be focused and attentive to the experience of life as it's happening. And that's often why one of the key ingredients to get you into that state is an appropriate challenge. Mm. You know, if things are too easy, if things are too guaranteed, then you're not emotionally switched on and your mind has the opportunity to wander. Whereas when the challenge is appropriate to your skill set, then you're fully focused and engaged. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, you know, to perform at the highest level in sports, or otherwise, you need to be emotionally gauged. The challenge needs to be there. If it's too easy, you won't perform at your highest level. That's why so many personal bests and records are broken at the Olympics, because the level of challenge is right at that right level for people to go beyond what they've previously delivered. Mm. I mean, man, I don't know if you watched it, but for me, an Italian winning the 100 meters, man... Now I and watched it's the four hundred meter like little- four hundred meter
0: hurdle. Nor- Norwegian breaking his own world record by nearly a minute. Holy oh. shit! And three other two Unreal. other guys breaking the world record.
1: <laughs> Unreal, Hey, <laughs> eh? Like just the level of performance there is just fantastic. So you know, again, that focus control. And I'll just talk a little bit more about how you do that for people who are listening. So, of course, if you find yourself in situations like uh, hunting, for example, then the primary thing you're doing there would be what's called in in the defense force literature, the special forces, that sort of stuff, would be called environment scanning. So what you're doing is you're directing all of your attention, all of your mental resources to what you can see, hear, smell, you know, what's out there, you know, what's going on in the world. Whereas the other sort of category of that focus control, that paying deliberate attention, often referred to as sort of mindfulness Is internal scanning. And this is where you're going, you know, what do I feel? What's my body like? What's my breathing like?
0: I think there there is a little bit of that to the hunter as well, because you've got to, like, you've got to really, especially in the bush, you've really got to navigate your body through the environment at the same time. So you you do get a bit of that internal and, you know, thoughts and paying attention as well. You've got to watch those too. So, yeah, you're probably in both of those factors.
1: Yeah, nice. And I was thinking you'd have to too, because your breathing's so important in shooting, right? Yeah, you know. And I imagine it's the same if you're going full Joe Rogan bow and arrow on it too. <laughs> I've, only, I've only tried it twice, yeah.
0: and uh, yeah, um, uh, was not successful.
1: <laughs> Mate, I'm such, I'm such, I'm such an urbanite. Hey, eh? like, I, I like, I so look forward to getting into hunting at some point. And, you know, I really want my kids to have that experience too for a couple of reasons. One is I think it's so good and healthy for us as an activity for all the reasons we've discussed. But also, you know, I just think it must be such a great and satisfying thing if you are a meat eater to be able to go, I understand the process that's involved in consuming this meat. You know, I don't want my kids to just go along and think meat comes from this package of the supermarket and to be disconnected from the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also as well that sense of satisfaction of, of being able to be a little bit more independent, a little bit more autonomous a little bit more self-sustaining in terms of how you operate, I think there's real psychological benefit in that so yeah, keen to get into it at some point but you know, at this stage I'm worried I might break a nail or something <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mate, you have to get along to NZDA there in, in Wellington there's a, there's a good bunch in um, I think the Heritage Trust mu- Museum's open, that's uh, right near the Beehive. so oh. yeah. Have a look have a look in there, go, Yeah, go, cool. There, a couple of the team um, that are in the offices. Gwen, yeah. hello, I'm sure you'd be happy to uh, shake your head.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it sounds good. It's probably it's just a matter of, you know, time and what you prioritizing right. at this point with the kids being so young, because my boys are four and six, you mm. know, it's kind of like, yeah, picking up new activities is difficult to manage relative to the ones we already sort of have as people. Yeah. Um Yeah, so the environment scanning is an interesting one too. And and then like talking about the combo, right? Like different things work for different people. Like, and and it depends on the level of intensity, too. For example, you know, I find environment scanning a really effective way to manage misery and suffering up to about a seven or eight out of ten. Like when I was running marathon last year, and I'm not naturally a distance runner at all. So for me, running a marathon is hard work, eh? I mean, it is for everyone I'm who with does you. it, but it's, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not my natural thing. You know, to give you an you idea. You mean neither. I've gone back to CrossFit um,
0: and it's much more natural. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> my feet, my feet splay like this. <laughs> yeah. Like I walk a bit like a penguin. And... uh yeah, Here good, we like, go. this is people trying to be seen and valued, mate.
0: <laughs> G'day. Is, uh, there's a little
1: there's a little red stop sign on the door, which they know means don't come in. <laughs> but you know, it's very, very entertaining to try and uh to try and activate dad. Nothing more entertaining than that.
0: Here goes, but man. anyway,
1: as I say, my feet splay <laughs> like this. So, you know, my natural movement is lateral, mm-hmm. which makes me really good at like rugby league and at judo, which is my sport and stuff like that, but running like forty two point two K in a straight line, mate, it's hard work. But what I would do is during the toughest, during the, um, <laughs> mate, during the harder aspects of it, I would simply do that environment scanning where I'm just like really trying to pay attention to everything I could see in my environment. And I would imagine myself being one of those people who has a photographic memory and trying mm-hmm. to pay attention to all of the details. And that would just help me reduce the amount of bandwidth that I'm devoting towards the suffering and the misery. And redirect it, so dial that down a little bit. Um, but then the internal scanning is a really interesting one too. And again, there's simple ways you can do that, eh? Like you can literally just stop at any point and just tune in and go, what does my body feel like right now? Like if you tune in right now to your body, is there any way that you're carrying tension that it's unnecessary? For example, are your shoulders carrying tension? They don't need to be carrying that type uh, of it's, al-
0: it's always my hopes, say And there was I saying when running. Um, that's where yeah. I've got, got the pain, and, and yeah, interestingly enough, I've had hip surgery. And it's funny when you talk to somatic people—you um, know, somatic therapists—they're like, "Oh, you, you hold stuff in your bones." And I'm like, you know, there's probably something to do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. There's a really interesting book called *The Body Keeps Score*, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is the way trauma impacts you—you you know, physiologically and all the rest. Of it. Interesting stuff, anyway. But, um, hey, so I meant to ask you, mate, and no pressure since we're, you know, um, on air in that with an audience, but, yeah, what did you think of the book? What did you like about the book?
0: Mate, um so the leading question? Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I loved the book, and and it was... Uh, what was it called? Holmes Ray Stress Scale. Um, yeah. I thought back to this time, well, level four last year, so I had... Um, was under financial stress. i just lost my grandfather and just separated from my um, partner and, and daughter and I was in lockdown. I think I ended up with a 350 score or something like that. And I was just like, Mate. I was like, yeah. oof. So and, and then I thought, well, I, you know, op- opportunity you know, strikes and I was yeah, on a farm and, and, home and, home and you're home. saying about that environmental yeah, scanning. That environmental... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Zoom's catching up. Um, and then, and then I was, uh, had something to do. I started uh, doing a bit of handstands. I had my bow. I started trying to get better at um, shooting my bow, and then I was able to rabbit shoot as well. So I was taking that to a hunting school and, and able to do some pest pest management. It was called in, in level four, of course. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I was. I did a whole bunch of podcasts. I just. I don't. I don't know where it all came from. I think it's sports. Um, but I was able to, yeah, slow down and, you know, and and reading what you talked about in the book, I was like, oh, that was, how how did I get so lucky that this stuff was semi-intuitive? You know, that that's what I thought about reading. Yeah, nice.
1: The book. Yeah, nice. And I'd say there's a few factors there. I'd say one was, you know, you had the good fortune of being in a situation in an environment that positively influenced your behaviour in the right direction. That being on the farm. Yeah. Because this is one of the things, right? It's... it's um. Sorry, team. I hope that it's not too distracting. It's (laughs) it's raining outside and there's nothing better than doing what you're not supposed to be doing when you're a kid. I don't know if you can hear them, like, squealing and giggling with the light when they open the door and then run away. And their poor (laughs) mum will be out there trying to manage. It's cold. Um, But... And I think this is a really interesting point because I just sort of pick up with this. Firstly, the scale you're referring to for those who kind of, haven't read the book yet, which, by the way, you can get at any good or bad bookshop, it also <laughs> is an Audible, Kindle, whatever, right? You know, get after it. Did you read it? Fitness. Anyway. <laughs> I had... Oh, you mean for the Audible book? I think you asked me if I'd read it at all. No. i say yes. Um, no, I didn't. And I'll tell you why. A couple of reasons. One is it gets recorded over in Melbourne, and it was recorded during lockdown, of course. Right. So that was a non-option. But this is really interesting because people who know me well have listened to it and gone, nah, that's you. <laughs> because what they do is they get like uh, an actor who listens to recordings of you speaking and then mimics your, your intonation, your language, your accent, all of those things. So it's very well done. So even people who know me well do think it sounds like me. But no, due to pandemic restrictions, it wasn't an option for me to record it myself. Yeah. Otherwise, would have loved to have done so. Uh, but what I was going to say is, is, is you know, there's a scale in there where, as you were you were talking about it, asks you to list the different things you've experienced the last twelve months, and then on that basis, it gives you score, and uh, and looks at how likely you are to suffer a stress-related illness based on how high your score is. And yours was incredibly high. You know, again, as we were discussing, you're really fortunate that you came out the other end of it uh, relatively unscathed, right? But what I was saying there is the situation you're in lent itself to be really favorable in terms of some of those things you were doing, right? Imagine if you were stuck in an inner city apartment in a large mm-hmm. city ride, how much harder it would have been to not just get caught in here and to suffer the consequences of that. And I think this is one of the things that we often really don't emphasize enough or understand enough about ourselves. And that is the impact our environment has on us. Mm-hmm. You know, in cognitive science, which is the study of of basically consciousness and what it means to be conscious, one of the things they talk about is what's called cognitive embeddedness. And this is the idea that you can't separate your mind from your body and also from your physical surrounds, from the environment you're in. And, you know, I often talk about this when I go and talk to people in prison, because of course, you know, I was in prison when I was younger and I turned my life around And a big thing I would like to make people aware of is the fact that it takes time to decontaminate after being in an environment like that. I always tell people to imagine it's like you're an eel, and at the moment, you're in a polluted stream. You know, you can't not be impacted by that pollution. And even once you get into clean water, it takes a while to flush that out of your system. And, you know, one of the things that we want to think about more is not just Hey, what do I need to be doing as an individual? But how can I set up my situation, my environment to make it easier to engage in the behaviours which help and assist me, you know, to give me that better experience? And there's some really interesting stuff in this area, by the way, that's coming out in medicine. And that's around what's called social prescribing. Have you ever heard of that, social prescribing?
0: Only in the context of like cancer wards in Japan where they um, get people to get outside and get in the garden or have even just views of nature for these people to improve their, their outcomes.
1: Yeah, nice. So yeah, the basic idea of social prescribing as well is that, you know, you look at your situation and you look at your network and the people who you're involved with in terms of actually trying to address medical issues. And so one of the things that they often do is in the social prescribing methodology, They'll have what's called link people who operate as the people in the community who provide you support, who go along to visit you, who go along to talk to you, who go along to help you with your medication and all of these things. And so it's this more holistic understanding. Whereas, again, when it comes to our well-being, when it comes to our flourishing, when it comes to our effectiveness, what we've tended to do is to just focus on ourselves and imagine ourselves to just be these independent beings that operate and to lose sight of the context and how relevant and how important that is i mean you know it's crucial stuff so i'd say you know who you are what you've experienced then being in that situation you know lent itself to more favorable outcomes than a lot of people would experience does that sound fair
0: yeah mate and what immediately comes to mind is when um it's a a diabetic and you see them individually and you try and talk about lifestyle intervention and stuff like that. But if there's a child and a a partner there, then you can have a quite a group conversation and everyone's kind of looking at each other, kind of, kind of guilty and kind of like, Oh, yep. We're all, we're all listening here. Um, and, and it's no wonder that we've all got this sort of susceptibility, but you see it in, in clusters and groups and families, you know, um, and it's often a big part of its behaviorally. Yeah. It's, um, and I was, I was listening to old Esther Perel yesterday, and she was talking about um, inpatient um, psychiatric care and doing the psychology for that. And then she created the, the counseling session for the individual and the family unit, because exactly like you were saying, it's kind of like she she termed it that this individual was the one within the family that they let um, harbor the emotions, har- you know, play them out, release them out, and everyone else is kind of on this other level of of handling it, or focusing the direction to the individual that oh, we're looking after them, but it was really a, a group traumatic experience, and she sort of thought that she needed to address the systemic trauma or emotional thing mm. to help the individual. It was it was pretty amazing outlook yeah. on, on where it comes from.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, eh? It's like again, you know, it's, it's this just westernisation of rugged individualism, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and you know, and again, there, there's real advantages to that in terms of, you know, pursuing your potential, all sorts of other stuff. But it loses sight of the fact that we really are social creatures and without that social connection and, that, you know, the interconnection, inter-reliance on each other that we just don't have as as flourishing lives, really. Um, one of the things that came to mind for me when you were talking about intervention too is, well, a couple of things. But one of them was, you know, the value of family group conferences in terms of restoration. And this is a really cool move that's that's sort of happening in the justice system at the moment. And that is sort of the move away from the adversarial system, us versus them, you know, catch and punish, this sort of stuff, to restoration. And restoration is about making people whole again. Mm. And part of that is making the victims of crime whole again, leaving them feeling restored after a negative experience. But also it's recognizing that the people who engage in crime and criminality do not do so because they have high levels of, of well-being. They're not flourishing, you know, and it's about restoration of them as well. And that that's, that's the process that we really want to try and undertake. And a big part of that are things like family group conferences for uh, teens who engage in offending. And this is where you will get the, the, the teenager along. You will get their family along. You will get victims along. You will get other relevant people along there. And it provides that opportunity for sort of like that collective engagement and restoration. And it's a tough one, you know, like as you can imagine, there's emotions are really charged and really high. But the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people who have been victims of crime who come out of family group conferences at the other end. It's like 80% would recommend them to other people and feel that they have, have been restored in some way as a result of that experience as opposed to the more traditional sort of justice process. But also the people who actually as offenders go through the family group conference process are significantly less likely to re-offend. And, you know, I think a big part of that is that whole restoration and that whole actually having to deal with the reality, the interpersonal reality and impact of your behaviour in a way you just don't if you just go through the standard justice system so, you know, I mean, again, you know, there are there are elements in society which which are starting to recognise more and more. I mentioned medicine in terms of the social prescribing, you know, and, and like the family group conferences and the interest in restoration and the justice sector. But yeah, man, you know, we're members of the social species. We need to be able to connect and get along with other people in order to be functional. Yeah. When,
0: when, you're, when you're talking about that sort of business environment of the leader being termed as the bully, you um, Is there also like kind of high resilience on those people that they just bounce back from the situation and carry on and carry on with what they're doing? But like you said, they're missing the soft skills, the -the in-the-moment management of their behavior and and their feelings and all all the things, all the cluster of things that happens in a one-on-one or um, leader-to-group interaction.
1: There's a lot of variance there, to be honest. You know, there are people who who are able to carry on and function at a really high level. And sometimes that can be because a bit of their emotional contagion of others is actually you know, driven by uh, lower levels of empathy, lower levels of emotional awareness for others, and just lower interest and concern in terms of managing their own emotions. So those people will tend to cope a bit better. But also it depends on the situation they're in, right? There are some situations where that sort of behavior is more expected and accepted. Mm -hmm. But then there are other situations where you'll have people who actually have high levels or higher levels of fragility themselves. And this is what starts happening as a process of unraveling on their part. You know, it can be a sign and an indicator of impending burnout. And, you know, there are different people, like you can look at different examples that have been in the media of people who are long-term seen as engaging in bullying and belittling behavior. And there's some great examples of these people as well in the psychopath test and... um, and and the book that was written by God oh, what's his name can you remember the author Do you know who I'm talking about
0: No no sorry
1: it's a great book He's also the guy who wrote Men Who Stare at Goats <laughs> That movie was based on He's a he's a he's a fantastic um uh But anyway There's some great examples there of people in the business world who really succeed For example you know all of the people involved in the sort of like the acquisitions and the asset stripping of companies and the firing of people, you know, those type of people, hey, you could definitely say that their behavior is often bullying-ish and shows a lack of concern for others. But within their context, it tends to be seen as an advantage and favorable. Whereas, you know, again, you will get those other people who just completely derail really promising careers because this stuff starts to become really problematic as they unravel themselves. So there's quite a bit of individual variance there, to be honest, Ryan. I mean, I think one of the interesting things, too, which is really relevant to a lot of the work I do in that leadership space is that, you know, often we end up promoting people to Mm. positions of leadership, but then not actually giving them the space and the opportunity and the development to understand how what got them here is not going to get them there. In other words, the things that got them successfully promoted will no longer be the things that actually have them effective and successful going forward now they're in a leadership position. And, you know, and this can lend itself to that kind of problematic behavior and experience and just a great level of stress. For example, you get promoted to a leadership position generally because you demonstrate a strong work ethic, a high level of ownership and commitment of deliverables and of work and technical expertise and knowledge required to perform effectively at your role. You then end up in this leadership position and now you think that, well, my job is to be the first amongst equals and to be the best at doing everything. And I'll just carry on owning work and making sure I'm all over everything and making sure I know everything, which of course leads to problems in delegation, micromanagement, plus massive levels of stress and pressure, rather than realizing, oh, okay, now I'm at this level, my job is actually to facilitate the performance of other people, not to be the one who does everything not to be the one who knows everything. So you know, part of the problem in terms of this area is actually we don't give people the development and training that would enable them to shift their mindset and focus to cope more effectively. And part of that is is that we're a country of predominantly small to medium uh, businesses and organizations that often don't have the kind of career development and leadership sort of development pathways that you might see as more common in larger countries. So, you know, some of us don't. Like the public sector has some really good stuff that they do really well. You know, there's other areas that do the same. You know, I, again, I do a lot of this work in both the public and private sector, but not everyone gets that opportunity. And like I said, often it's it's that sort of uh, false understanding of what's going to make you successful that leads to a lot of these problems.
0: Mm. Um, just while you touched there on the sort of public sector stuff, um, after you talked with Will Fleming, you spoke about how you um, have done psychology. You're not a clinical psychologist. Um, where this, where could you outline the differences? Um, what mm. do, you, how do you see the landscape? Like we're seeing a lot coming from Mike King and talking about, the, you know, what they're trying to offer with Gumboot Friday and I'm hoping stuff like that, and the frustrations around it, and you know, the 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 crippling numbers that we keep getting um, embarrassed by. But we, how do you see the psychology landscape? And you know. The book is about the tools cool. to, to make us hopefully cope yeah
1: yeah 100 percent. so uh, look i think you know what sort of drove that with uh will's podcast was he referred to me as a psychologist and that's actually a legally protected term that you can only use if you are a registered psychologist and the vast majority of those are clinical psychologists who deal with vulnerable people who are dealing with mental health or other um, strong emotional issues, issues around functionality. And my background is not in clinical psychology and I'm not registered. Uh, So I've just never had the business case to register, to be honest, I'm a doctor of psychology. You know, people know what I deliver and because I don't work in that clinical space, I haven't had the motivation to actually go through the process. It just basically requires another bit of university education. But, you know, I'm sort of where I need to be in terms of my skill set. Whereas clinical psychologists focus on that stuff, like the era of psychology that I really focus on is called differential psychology. And that's an era of psychology that looks at individual differences. How do we differ from each other in terms of that ability to cope and recover in terms of our personalities, in terms of the way our brains work, in terms of our values, what will give us a meaningful life. And it uses understanding of those differences in order to sort of help people flourish. And for me, that's my focus, is not dealing with deficiency, but rather going, hey, if you're just experiencing a normal level of misery or suffering as a human being, then how can we really help you up your game so that you have a better time of it so that you have a more meaningful and satisfying life. If I was uh, dealing with people who had clinical issues, you know, who I thought had serious anxiety-related disorders or depression or anything like that, I'd refer those onto clinical psychs who specialize in that stuff. You know, my era of psych is more around the the more standard human experience, and then how can that be the best for you? And you could say that falls under an umbrella of what's called positive psychology, Historically, psychology has more been around deficiency. You know, there's something wrong. Let me help you address that. And, you know, and again, I, I, just to go back to that normal level of misery quote, this great quote from Freud, which is the whole point of psychoanalysis is to help people return to a normal level of misery and suffering. You know, it's not to remove it because suffering is normal. Um, whereas for me, the whole positive psych area what that's done is it's moved away from the deficiency focus to go, hey, how good can your life be? How can we help you flourish? What's possible Mm -hmm. as a person in that respect? Um, I'll tell you what's interesting one, though, there and can be a little bit challenging for those of us who are more dopamine dominant, which I mentioned earlier is associated with motivation and impetus to do things, to achieve, is that actually there's a really good argument that, Having a meaningful life doesn't require you to do or achieve anything, actually. that Just being more peaceful and self-accepting and more in the moment-by-moment experience of your relationships and otherwise is a really legitimate and good goal. Now, as someone who's an active relaxer, I would really struggle with that. But I do just want to acknowledge that the whole path and philosophy and sort of world outlook that I promote, which is around this pursue your potential. In fact, I love that SAS value, the relentless pursuit of excellence, all about that. But I do just want to acknowledge that that's not an objective need for everyone. You know, that's sort of based on your neurology. And again, if you're more like the early childhood education um, teachers, that serotonin dominant sort of ability to be in the moment, to be more relaxed, to be less impulsive, then actually... You know, you can have other goals there around just general sort of life acceptance and peace things like that. I don't relate to. What about you, Ryan?
0: No, I'm guilty of being an active relaxer. Big, big time. Like I said last year, I had had to farm, <laughs> had to farm to sort of walk around on fix fences and you know clear away scrub and stuff. Whereas this time, on sort of um hundred you know hundred square meter house on a generous tukara section, but um, yeah <laughs> I've been I've been twiddling my thumbs a bit and, and doing a bit of that escapism onto the digital platform. So yeah it's um, it's a surprise, bit a little bit of a struggle for me and that's what I found with, with going hunting. Um, you brought up the the slowing mate, down take of time. Me hunting.
1: I've done mate that's the pay for these bloody podcasts. Eh? Yeah bro, let's very yeah, it sometime. Let's take check me the up. Boys.
0: Get down to, know, to the Rohinis or Taro's close by you.
1: <laughs> cool go cool. Uh, um, One more thing I just want to pick back up on, which was around the Mike King stuff and the rest of it, you know, Um, like the deficiency of resource we have in the space of sort of like that mental health or as, you know, as um, my mate Jimmy Hunt likes to call it, that mental fitness space. We both use that term and it's a really powerful one because it shifts it away from that deficiency focus to the just flourishing focus is really worrying uh, and, you know, like anyone out there who's thinking, oh, psychology sounds interesting. Go and pursue a career as a psychologist. Honestly, there's such a deficit. There's such big waiting lists to be able to see people. It's so hard to see a good psychologist or even a bad one, even if you've got the cash. And they're about 150 bucks an hour on average if you can find them and you're paying privately. It is a really good career to pursue if it's something of interest to you. You know, if you're someone who wants to help other people and you want to be real well remunerated and have flexibility for it, it's a great one. But, you know, part of the problem is we just don't have enough, let alone psychiatrists mm. who are people who have gone through and gotten a medical degree first before specializing in psychology. I mean, my gosh, these people are so rare and so precious that it's very hard. And that's why it's really disheartening when you've got people, you know, like Mike who want to Pay for and facilitate people being able to have meetings with these people who are often so hard to find and so hard to get in contact with that there are sort of barriers in the way there. And do you I know, just do you know the, the economics of, of it
0: because, like, I find it weird that there's only about 12 or so clinical psychologists graduating a year, like, there's a shortage of optometrists and there's sort of 50 to 60. What What's the barrier? Like, I, I know plenty of people study psychology and then it's like this massive bottleneck for a clinical psychologist, yet we've got a massive demand out the other end. Like, I'm missing something, I swear. (laughs) Or I'm wrong about something. Yeah,
1: (laughs) look, I I think just the difference is just the drop-off. Because, like, if we look at the number of people who study psychology, like, actually, most people study psychology because they're not really sure what they want to do and it's just a generally interesting area, as opposed to that they're driven to want to be a psychologist. And I think that's quite a common one, right? So I, I think there's probably a big drop off rate right there because for, for many people it's just a general area of interest rather than a career that they want to pursue. But also, of course, you know, you do have to go through postgraduate qualifications to become a psychologist. And, you know, that's an extra demand on people. You know, you can only get entry into that if you've got certain grades and there's certain other demands associated with it. But yeah, I look, I, I don't know, man. I, I'm I'm not close enough to that part of it to know why we're not getting enough people through. And um, I suppose it's because we've just had an exponential increase in terms of the need and the desire for psychologists relative to the supply, right? Demands massively increased, but supply hasn't caught up. And I think there are a few reasons for that. You know, one reason is just, look, as a society and as a world in many respects, we're just more open and honest about the need to actually try and talk to other people to get some tools, to get some help when we're struggling. You know, back in the day, sort of my father's generation and that, you just bottle that shit up, you know, just shut that stuff down and then, you know, not be as effective as you could be in terms of your interpersonal relationships and the rest of it. Or, you know, we have the sort of the suicide rates, which are so bad amongst men and the rest of it. But um, whereas now we're, we're more open to the need for it, we're more open to the value of it. But also we inhabit a period in history where we've just got some factors which are increasing the likelihood that people will have these issues. You know, and one of them, which is really well documented, is the culture of safetyism. And this is where we've so mollycoddled our children and our young people emotionally that they're ill-equipped to deal with distress. Now, this is certainly not true of all of them, But a lot of them have grown up with these really unhelpful messages that you should never feel anything that's unpleasant, Mm. anything that, Mm. you know, makes you feel uncomfortable. And if you feel that, then you're unsafe and there's something wrong and it needs to be addressed. Whereas, man, that's just the way your brain works. No matter what your life looks like, you're going to feel unpleasant emotions because you have this worry machine in between your ears. That's normal. But if you've got these ideas, you're not supposed to feel that, then you're going to be ill equipped to deal with those emotions when you encounter them. But also, resilience actually comes from experiencing stress and distress, not from avoiding it. And so we've deprived people of these opportunities to naturally sort of have those stressful experiences, to learn to deal with that stuff. And therefore, they're less well equipped as adults. And then you throw on top of that the additional stresses and it and challenges that they encounter by things like social media that didn't exist when we were younger and the dopamine deficit that's caused by those types of uh, activities, which are so addictive, they really are strong addictions and such a challenge for young people. And also as well, you know, pornography, the impact of that on young people, particularly on young males, but young females as well, you know, social media, the bullying there. It's interesting because when you talk about bullying, you know, you know, a big impact here is more on on young women than young mm. men. And a reason for that is, is what the research suggests is that young men primarily use their phones for gaming and pornography, right? Those are the things you need to watch out for with them. Whereas one young woman will use them to engage in character assassination, to engage in ex- excluding behaviours, to to vilify, to bully people, and those will be other young women. And the challenge is there's no home time there. When I was at school, you know, if you got beaten up or you got bullied, there was always some point where you got to go home, Mm -hmm. and those people wouldn't be coming with you. Whereas thanks to social media for young women and some young men, those bullies are there with you the whole time. You never get a break from them. Plus as well, think of all the social comparison Mm Thanks to... You know, social media, thanks to Instagram and that we've got like these Instagram influencers and models who are using so many filters that they're not even a reflection of what real people look like and then you have these youngsters growing up thinking that's what I'm supposed to look like when it's an impossible to meet standards. So I just want to acknowledge that. We're having a lot more of these issues because people inhabit a world where there are additional challenges and pressures and stresses on them but also where they have these false ideas and they have this safetyism that they grow up in, which means that they don't actually get exposed to the things that would enable them to build a greater level of resilience to deal with the challenges. So it's sort of like a couple of things there. And so this has all resulted in this increased demand and and the supply just hasn't been there. But again, I fully encourage this. If you're sitting there thinking, I don't like my job. I've always been interested in psychology. I'd love to help people explore what would be required. Probably within four or five years, you could have a different, really meaningful, well-remunerated career where you're making a difference. And trust me, four or five years, that's got to go regardless of what you spend your time doing. You might as well start taking the steps that it leads you to a really... Fulfilling, contributing career, if that's something you're interested in. Geez, I, I found like I sound like an advert. And can I recommend Massey University as well <laughs> there go. Just go on the advert piece because they were the people I studied through when I was in prison, and they bent over backwards to help me out to make it possible for me to study. If it wasn't for Massey, mate, I just wouldn't be having the life I'm having now. Yeah. So, as a university, <clears throat> fully recommend them. Hey, there you go. Plug for Massey.
0: Yeah, and like you said, four or five years will go by and you might as well be doing something interesting and getting value out of it than than something you hate. On on the safetyism, you've you've really sort of um, touched on something. Uh, When when, uh, my daughter's having a tantrum and um, often I'd be trying to get to sleep, Um, I've reiterated to her that she is safe and she is loved. Um, Am I curating this problem? No. (laughs) Um, I I think think it's a a case of... um, contrasting when things are bad and when things are not and being able to acknowledge when things are bad, being um, I don't know, have sort of gone down the the road of acknowledging the thing that happens, like, yeah, that hurts. Um, yep, you fell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And that's the thing, right? And I think that's the key, is allowing them to fall. Allowing them to go, yeah, that hurts. And you know, and that's that's, you know, that's fine. I'm here to comfort you. But also, it's okay for you to get hurt. It's okay for you to fall. That's a function of life, and that's all right. So I think that's where the safetyism comes in. The last thing we want to do is to, like, swing the pendulum back to where it was before, which is where, you know, you, just, up. you just go and look after yourselves. You toughen up. I'll give you something to cry about all of that stuff. Oh, but we've yeah. swung so far in the other direction, right, that we need to find the balance, and the balance is, is that you need to be that safe and loving and caring person for your daughter but you also need to be that person who can deal with your own discomfort around her taking risks that might result in her getting hurt because that's how you learn that's how you grow i was watching my six-year-old climb this tree yesterday in our backyard and you bit your and tongue I, when you said honestly, be careful I do not like watching it. sorry
0: you bit your tongue when you said be careful <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I don't even say it again, but what I do is I try and give him useful advice, like three points of contact. Yeah, mate. (laughs) You need to have three points of contact at all time. And then I see him swinging, and he's literally about 15 metres up, just swinging on his hands by this thin branch. And I'm like, bigger branch! Get a bigger (laughs) branch! So I'm, I'm trying to give him that latitude, not watch all the time but also give them some useful things that make it more likely he can be successful and less hurt in the environment, but still take the risk, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's it. It's not, it's not about not loving and caring for and providing that safe environment, and communicating that safety. It's about letting them take in risks and also letting them know, hey, your feelings are going to get hurt sometimes. That's okay. It's okay to feel upset, but to sort of help people dial down these, lang- these, these um, verbal sort of like things that they used, which escalate the stress, which escalate the, the problems by saying things like, I'm unsafe. You're not unsafe if someone has a different opinion than you. You're unsafe if you're standing on the top of a roof. You're unsafe if you're in the road when a car's coming. Those are situations where you're unsafe. But when you start using that language, what you do is you create a physiological response in terms of cortisol, in terms of adrenaline, that which is consistent with the greater perception of threat, which isn't there. So it's a sort of like just having perspective around your language is a really useful thing because again, otherwise what you do is you just unnecessarily dial up the intensity. You dial up the emotional experience associated with actually what something, which is just discomfort. You know, you can be annoyed by someone and that doesn't mean you're triggered by them. And I was talking to someone else about this recently to be triggered really in terms of the technical sort of use of that term, is about having a previous severe trauma reawakened in you. Mm. Like I've had PTSD, man. I still get symptoms of it. If I'm exposed to any kind of physical violence in person now, which is unexpected, you know, then what happens? If, like if someone threatens me or anything like that, then I, my PTSD is reawakened. I'm going to have nightmares. I'm going to be hypervigilant to be thinking about it. If you have that kind of experience, that's an indication that you have some work to do. It's not an indication that the world needs to change to suit you. So I regularly in my public speaking talk about things which could cause people distress. I talk about sexual abuse. I talk about violence. I talk about prison. I talk about all sorts of stuff, right? And if you find yourself feeling really strong and pleasant emotions as a result of some of those topics of conversation, you know, then that's a sign and an indicator that you have some work to do in an area that would be really meaningful for you. And that could be really hard, but there's meaning there. That's what that that emotion's telling you. Whereas if you're just feeling a general level of discomfort, then you're just uncomfortable. Maybe you're annoyed. Maybe you're upset. But when you start using that language, like I'm getting triggered, again, you're just creating this, this mountain out of this molehill from an emotional perspective. And it's really unhelpful. But this is the sort of stuff, unfortunately, you know, that we promote in our society today. So, you know, Altering our language, being a bit more okay with that discomfort, being prepared to sort of, you know, bite the tongue and close the eyes a little bit and deal with our own discomfort around our kids taking risks, you know, appropriate risks. You know, it's that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, no, that's quite, quite funny. I was having a conversation with my girlfriend this morning about doing headstands and headstands with her daughter, and she and she said those words, like, Oh, I'm, I'm scared she'll hurt her neck. And then she said, No, actually, I'm I'm scared. That she'll hurt her neck. She'll be fine. <laughs> I was like, you yeah, good, good. You caught yeah. yourself."
1: <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, it's it's those small things, eh? And as parents, you know, we have a responsibility for that. It's tough, and part of the problem is is going back to the s- social environment we inhabit. Ryan is that if you're the sole parent who wants to encourage a bit of independence with your kids, if you're the sole parent who doesn't want your kids on a cell phone until they're older, and that it's really hard to operate without that community of support and so you know that's one of the things that we want to try and do as parents is is we want to try and find other like-minded people who are okay with their kids being a bit more Mm. free-range are okay with their kids you know being a bit more restricted in terms of engaging with technology too early you know who are okay with it because then we have that you know that environment that support that makes it easier for us and for our kids it's really hard to do that if you're just the the only person in your community with those ideas.
0: Yeah, I was thinking it's quite hard to um, relay Jonathan Heights work to the world when uh, you turn on a YouTube video and you get five Apple ads thrown at you, you know. (laughs) Maybe maybe, it would be Jonathan Height's message, you know, blown at you, that that graph of the uptick in in, uh, girls having themselves with, with social media, I don't know.
1: Oh, 100%. And for anyone who's not familiar with his work, The Coddling of the American Mind, you know, get it as a book, listen to it, whatever. It's fantastic. It has some great research, but also has some great tips in there around what you can do to raise more resilient kids. It's fantastic stuff. Pretty good.
0: Mate, uh, where are people finding it? As you said, it's in all good, bad, and uh, Amazon and Audible places. Uh, what yeah. about you you personally, mate?
1: Oh, well, if, if you want to sort of follow me, get in touch with me, social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Dr. Paul Wood. so at Dr. Paul Wood, you'll find me, YouTube channel as well, same deal there. You know, I try to contribute, I try and uh, uh, spread the love and that, so, you know, please feel free to connect in those contexts. And uh, yeah, like I said, you know, um, real pleasure getting the opportunity to catch up with you, Ryan, always enjoy it. Yeah, and mate. I will hit you up about that hunting, mate. Yeah, I have keen the perfect
0: as. the perfect um, group of people to to go with, and it's in the Tararua's. So um, I'm going to get off this of call and, and mes- message them and say oh, we've got to add a plus one uh, to this. Uh, Dr. Paul Wood's going to come along, and, and mate, uh, my
1: wife's keen as, as oh, well. Oh yeah, plus plus two. Plus Let's or organise a babysitter. She's ex-army, mate. She like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoot a rocket launcher or something. <laughs>
0: oh dear, we have to get our earplugs out. Mate, um, you've got a chapter on flow. What, what keeps you in the flow?
1: Oh, man. Oh, I think actually just, you know, the, the personal desire to try and actually focus my attention on the things that matter. And for me, I'm lucky that I have a life where I have huge opportunities for flow. In my personal life, my most common areas of flow are mountain biking and judo. Both of those are activities where if you're not fully focused and paying attention, you're going to get some tangible feedback really quickly. (laughs) And uh, professionally, because so much of my time is spent public speaking, man, when I step on that stage and I'm in front of that audience, you better believe that I am present and attentive for that experience. That's how I get in it. You know, That's how I do it. But also as well, like so many activities, you need to do it enough to sort of really be able to hit that sweet spot where you can just fully be immersed and into flow. So I'm fortunate that I've had enough experience now to be pretty good to be pretty good at being in the moment in those situations, which actually makes it way more effective because I go in and I'm not constrained by any script or content. Mm -hmm. I'm able to take the talk wherever it's going to add most value for the audience I'm with. So there you go.
0: And I think that sums up uh, the opening of your book and that this is a muscle that can be trained like our physical fitness, we can train our mental fitness. So bloody awesome, Mo. And uh, thanks so much for making some time for us. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it. And and we'll get on to organising that trip. Sounds bloody awesome. Cheers, man. Cool, mate. Keen as